some of you are familiar with the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They married on Jim's uh, 26th birthday. Elizabeth was 21. They served as missionaries in the jungles of Ecuador. And the bulk of their time was spent reaching the Quechua Indians. In the fall of 1955, so this would be 10 Ten months after celebrating the birth of their daughter, Valerie, Jim and four other brothers made contact with the Wahurani tribe. For some time, they would drop these gifts from from an airplane. They figured out a way to lower a bucket uh, down to this tribe, and they would uh, drop these gifts down to show that they had peaceful reasons for for being there. In uh, January 1956, they finally found a way to land the plane near this people's village, and for several days they interacted with a few of the men and women, and their hope is just to continue building these these bridges in order to share the gospel of Christ. Five days later, though, out of fear and a desire to protect their tribe, several Wahurani men speared Jim and the other four brothers to death. You could say that Jim lived and died by some words that he wrote in his journal in college. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I mention this story not just to to reflect on what gave Jim and and these other brothers uh, courage uh, to continue going into these dangerous places to, to share the gospel. I also mention it to reflect on what gave Elizabeth courage to continue working uh, with the Wahuranis. She learned the language of the people who speared her husband. And then she went to live with them after his death. Valerie was three years old at, at the time and Uh, In one of the documentaries, they interview Elizabeth, and she talks about these two Wahurani women asking to see her, and her response is amazing. So, of course, we said yes instantly. Just, of course, yes, I want to see them. And these same two women then ask Elizabeth to, to return with them to the village, and Elizabeth asks them, will your people spear me the same way they speared my husband? And these women say, no, you are our friend. Three weeks later, Elizabeth takes her three-year-old daughter, Valerie, and Rachel Saint to live with the the Wahurani. And the result of these exchanges is many of the Wahuranis coming to know Christ, including the man who killed Elizabeth's husband. So what gives Christians such courage to be faithful in the face of death? What, what gives someone like Elizabeth the courage to live with the very people who speared her husband? What will give you courage to be faithful when the tribulation pressures you to give up? Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna answers that question, and it's an answer that we all need. Otherwise, in the face of suffering, fear will lead us to compromise. 
This message to Smyrna will show us that by depending on Christ and making ourselves rich in His kingdom, God enables faithfulness even when we're afraid. By depending on Christ and making ourselves rich in His kingdom, God enables faithfulness even when we're afraid. Let's look at verse 8 and, and hear from the word of the Lord. It says, and to, the church, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this is the second of seven messages to seven churches. And as Revelation uh, as a whole would circulate among these seven churches, Smyrna would have been next on the major trade routes. Smyrna had a large harbor and was among the wealthier cities. You might know it as Izmir, which is today's third largest city in Turkey. Something unique to this message is that Jesus has no rebuke for the church in Smyrna. Uh, last time when we looked at the, his, his letter to the church in Ephesus, he rebuked them for abandoning the love they had at first. He will have rebukes for four other churches as well, uh, but there's no rebuke for the church in Smyrna, and there's no rebuke for the church in Philadelphia. And that should really grab you, like, why aren't these churches rebuked while the others are? What makes these churches different? And we notice that both churches are facing a lot of suffering and a lot of persecution. And when we compare them to the other churches, here's what we need to draw from that. The less a church compromises in their faithfulness to Jesus, the more the world will hate them. The more a church looks like Jesus, the more the world will hate them as they hated Jesus. So these Christians in Smyrna seem to be following Jesus without compromise. But that faithfulness has led to great suffering, great persecution, great pressure to, to get them to compromise. In fact, Jesus gives us the heavenly perspective on their sufferings, and from that heavenly perspective, we see that Satan is making war against this church in Smyrna. Jesus says, I know your 
tribulation. And tribulation has to do with the sufferings that we face in the path of obedience. There's an entire system of rebellion that stands against Jesus and the people who represent Jesus. Okay, and so one way they're, they're feeling this is through poverty. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, you will notice that Jesus also adds, but you are rich. He just means that in a different sense. Economically, they are poor. Spiritually, they are rich. By way of contrast, the church in Laodicea is economically rich, but spiritually poor. And so Jesus, this is in chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, Jesus tells the church in Laodicea to buy from me, buy from Jesus gold that has been refined in the fire so that you might become truly rich. And the riches in mind are the riches of the kingdom that one gains through obedience. But here's the pattern in Revelation. If you are spiritually rich, if you make yourself rich in Jesus' kingdom, the world has the tendency to make you economically poor. Alright? That could come in a variety of ways. Your faithfulness to Jesus could mean nobody wants to hire you anymore. Okay, your faithfulness to Jesus might mean you don't get to benefit from the family inheritance anymore. They, they cut you off. Your faithfulness to Jesus uh, could mean that the authorities come in and they, they plunder your property, like we saw in Hebrews chapter 10. It could mean imprisonment. And if you're in prison, you can't make money. ...to support your family. In chapter 13 uh, of Revelation, verse 17... ...it means that people can't buy and sell... ...without making some kind of compromise with the beast. Idolatry and corruption... ...it, it so permeated every aspect of city life... ...that the only way to buy and sell... ...was to kind of participate in it. Make some compromises here and there... with the idolatrous culture, maybe pay some respects to Caesar, his Lord, throw some incense on the altar so that you can come into the store. Right? It would be comparable to something nowadays like, bow to our flag or I will ruin your cake business. Something like that, right? But if you're Allegiance is with Jesus and not the beast, who's controlled by Satan, by the way. You can't buy and sell anymore. So that's how bad it gets. Poverty often comes because of an uncompromising faith in Jesus. Another way they're feeling the tribulation is slander. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews... ...and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Slander applies when someone publishes a false statement to damage your reputation. And in this case, the Jews are spreading false things about Christians to get them arrested. We, uh, you, you, can, you can find this same type of behavior in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 14.2, where they share the gospel. Some of 
the people believed, but the Jews, it says, they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. And so it stirs up this, and they start following the apostles from one town to the, ne- to the next and poisoning the minds of, of the Gentiles against the Christians. In Acts chapter 17, verse 5, uh, we see the same thing. Some Jews get jealous and they, uh, of, of, of people coming to faith, and, and so they stir up a mob, and then they blame it on the Christians. So they couldn't find anything against the Christians legally, and so they make stuff up so that to get the authorities, uh, the authorities involved to stop these, these Christians. As a result of them doing this, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Why does he call them that? Well, because Satan is the father of lies. Some of the Jews were doing the same thing to Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 8, and And Jesus confronts them and he tells them, you're not children of Abraham. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So being a Jew... Being a true child of Abraham means more than just sharing a bloodline. You must also share Abraham's faith in Jesus. Instead, these Jews have joined Satan in his war against the saints. Another part of their tribulation is imprisonment. Verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. So the Jews are in cahoots with Satan. That's verse 9. And now Rome is in cahoots with Satan as well. If you're on the ground in Smyrna, it just looks like Rome is putting these Christians in prison because of the lies they're hearing. But from the heavenly perspective, which is what Jesus is giving us in Revelation, it is actually Satan. It's the devil. Satan stands behind the actions of these government officials. These Christians are also feeling the threat of death. Be faithful unto death, Jesus says. Not all imprisonments ended with the death penalty for for Christians. I mean, the New Testament elsewhere, you know, gives us examples of like Peter getting this miraculous escape by an angel and and, uh, uh, other government officials kind of wanting to wash their hands of a particular situation and and they get get out of jail. John here is, is only exiled to Patmos. He still has some freedoms. But this imprisonment would mean death and their faith would be tested to the point of death. So there would be no going home, no more family birthdays, no more laughter with the children, no more pleasant sunrises, just waiting for their execution. So we have poverty, slander, imprisonment, and death. And Satan is using all these in his war against this church. He's using all these things to pressure them to get us, to get, to get them to compromise. Right? Think of Job as well 
and the way that Satan tested Job and tried sifting him through all kinds of, of suffering. Think of the way Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and the devouring in that context has to do with persecution. The sufferings that result from persecution. The devil rages against the church, and that will mean great suffering for many. So if Satan makes war against the church this way, how are we supposed to win? How are we supposed to conquer? How does Jesus command us to fight? Okay, we do not win by taking up arms. We do not win the war by taking people's lives. We win the war by staying faithful even when others want to take our lives for our commitment to Christ. We conquer by staying faithful unto death. Jesus gives two commands here. The first is this, do not fear. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So do not fear. For those in Christ, there is no need to be afraid. And the second command complements the first. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Don't negotiate with the devil. Don't negotiate with Rome. Don't compromise your allegiance to Christ. When you're thinking about how you won't get to kiss your wife goodnight anymore. When you're thinking about how your daughter might not get to grow up with you. That's the kinds of things you think about when you're facing execution. Don't give up, he's saying. Even when the circumstances may require your death, don't let them stop you from being faithful. That's how we win the war. Okay? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, talks about this, where Satan is cast out of heaven to the earth, and he is waging war against the saints, against those who keep the commandments of God, and Revelation 12.11 says that these saints conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So this is how we conquer as believers. We, we spread the word of Christ's testimony to others, and when they take our blood like they did our Lord's blood, we, we love not our lives, even unto death. That's how we win the war. Still, I want to know how. I mean, I want to know how to choose faithfulness even when I'm afraid. Don't you? I mean, you read these stories from, from church history like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, and you think, I, I don't know if I could have taken my three-year-old girl into the jungle like that. Especially after they killed my spouse. And you, and you hear about the threats to the church in, in Afghanistan right now. And, 
And these are your brothers and sisters. And they're just like you. And, and you read their stories and you put yourself in their shoes and, and you can feel the, the fears rising in your gut while you, while you read these stories. And you think about what they must be thinking about. There's no way out. What are they going to do to our families? What are they going to do to my girls? And we fear for ourselves and we fear for other believers. So how then, when we're afraid, do we choose faithfulness? The kind of faithfulness that sticks with Jesus, even when it means death. How, when we're afraid to, to do that next thing, to take that next step. How do we choose faithfulness? Well, the answers are here in, in our passage. And the rest of this sermon is your application. This is what I want you to take home. Are these things uh, to help you grow in faithfulness? For starters, we must learn to trust in the sovereignty of Christ over all things. We must learn to trust in the sovereignty of Christ over all things. Notice how Jesus introduces himself in verse 8. He is the first and the last. We talked a little bit about this a while back. This is a title that appears three times in Isaiah. If you want to write them down, Isaiah 41, verse 4. Isaiah 44, verse 6. In Isaiah 48, verse 12. Now, if you go back and you read 41 and 44 and 48 in their, in their entirety, each time God is distinguishing, he's distinguishing himself from the nations and their idols. Okay, They're, the nations and their idols lack any power to determine the future. But God, who is the first and the last, who knows the end from the beginning, right? He not only knows this future before it takes place, but He creates the future by His sovereign Word. Okay, so neither the nations nor their gods are really in control. Jesus is. Jesus is the sovereign one, is what Revelation is telling us. Same here when we face tribulation. Jesus controls everything. Nothing comes to us that's outside of His sovereign will. You even get a glimpse of this in Revelation 6 when the martyrs are before His throne and it says how long, they're crying out, how long will you, until you vindicate us, Lord? And He tells His answer in response to these martyrs who've already died is they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so Jesus, in the plan of Jesus, He has other martyrs that were going to follow these martyrs. He is sovereign over everything that happens to, to them. We also see His sovereignty here in that He knows everything about them, including what will happen to them. He tells them what will happen. The devil is about to throw you into prison. and You will be tested for ten days. 
He tells them that before it even takes place. We also see His sovereignty in that He limits evil. Throughout Revelation, you find this pattern of Christ limiting evil, limiting the devil's ability. When the judgments come, they're only, you only get a third of the people. When the tribulation comes, you get 1,320 days, right? You, you, you see these, these numbers used... Uh, we see this in the Gospels too, right? He's, now is the hour of the power of darkness when Jesus is about to die on the cross. The darkness gets one hour. You see this pattern throughout Scripture where Christ is limiting evil. And here too, we see that evil only gets ten days. It's not necessary that we see that as a literal 24-hour day period. It could be a symbolic number to represent a limited amount of time that they will be in prison. So when we face tribulation, we must remember that nothing will come to us apart from Jesus' sovereign purpose. He knows everything that we're going to face in the future. And He limits evil and one day will bring evil to its end in the lake of fire. I've mentioned him before, but Joseph's son is an evangelist, and he also pastored in communist Romania in the, in the 80s, suffering a great deal for his faith. And he once encouraged an audience to make the sovereignty of God the first pillar in your theology. And then he tells a story of how a, a robust vision of God's sovereignty helped him through a period of suffering and he tells us, he gives this account that at one point in his ministry, the authorities decided to put him on trial for preaching the gospel in Romania. And before the trial is the statement to the police. And so they bring him in and, and he says, imagine this, this long table with six senior officers and the prosecutor, and they deliver the indictment to Mr. Son. And, and then they proceeded with a speech about how grave his actions were, him sharing the gospel the way he was. And uh, to, to, to Mr. Son's amazement, the colonel says, you know, after all, isn't it written in Romans 13 that we are of God and you're challenging us? So Pastor Son uh, then says this, Sir, will you let me explain how I understand Romans 13 in this situation? Sir, yes, you are God's instruments, no doubt about that. But what happens here is not between you and me. What happens here is between my God and myself. God has some dealings with me here. Maybe He wants to teach me a few lessons. But sir, you will not do to me anything but what God has decided you to do because you are only my God's instruments. And then Mr. Son says, you know, he didn't like that interpretation. But then he turns and asks the people he's talking to, if all your enemies are God's instruments, why are you afraid? Jesus is always in control. He has his purposes in our suffering. 
Sometimes it's to test us and refine our faith. Sometimes it's to embolden the witness of others when they see that we're being faithful unto death. Sometimes it's to keep our longings in the right age. Sometimes it's to exemplify the way Christ has loved us when He was faithful unto death. Sometimes it's to display the worth of Christ in what we're willing to give up for Him. And sometimes it's all of the above, working together. Whatever His purposes are, though, we, we must trust that He is in control. And it's, and it's this kind of truth, this way of thinking about Christ, like keeping this vision of Christ's glory that we already got in chapter 1, it's by thinking and meditating upon it that this truth will help replace our fears with faithfulness. Something else that will help is rejoicing in Christ's victory through death. Rejoicing in Christ's victory through death. In verse 8 again, Jesus is the one who died and came to life. Now how reassuring would that aspect of Jesus' glory be to a church who is about to suffer and die for their faith. Jesus already entered death and then He came out alive. It's even more than that, isn't it, for the believer? Jesus chose to enter death to take away the sting that's caused by our sin. And then he rose to ensure that all his people will one day share a resurrection body like his own. This is why he calls Jesus the first fruits. Right? There's more harvest that is to come. So this truth leads us to follow Jesus in laying down our lives as well in the spread of the gospel to all nations. Don't you see this shift in the gospels? These 12 disciples, they're always scared and fearful and timid and... And when Jesus is, comes to the cross, they all flee. But once He's risen from the dead, you see this boldness in the book of Acts. They're not afraid any longer to keep preaching in the face of threats and death. John Patton was a minister from Scotland. And he taught for several years in Glasgow. And he then answered the Lord's call at age 33 to take the gospel to a people, to a stretch of islands called the New Hebrides. This is uh, over in Australia. The natives to these islands were, were cannibals. And they would eat the flesh of their defeated foes. They also practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice. Before Patton was going to these islands, these other two missionaries preceded him and their names were John, John Williams and James Harris, but they were killed and eaten by cannibals shortly after arriving on shore. And yet John still chooses to go. So you've got to ask, what gives John the courage? And I think we find it in this uh, humorous story from his autobiography. It says... Uh, Amongst many who sought to deter me from going to the islands was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was always the cannibals. 
you will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And as the story goes on, the man throws up his hands and says, he says, I have nothing left to say to you. But, but there it is. We see this resurrection power enabling Patton to choose faithfulness. By following Jesus into death, Jesus will be faithful to raise you. Again, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. When he tells the grave to open, it must listen to him. And it will listen to him when he calls you out of the grave. So you need to rejoice in this truth. Preach it to yourself often. Don't wait till you're suffering to start thinking about resurrection hope. It must be part of you now. Third, God enables faithfulness amidst fears when we invest in the riches of Christ's kingdom. When we invest in the riches of Christ's kingdom. Don't miss the importance of that little parenthesis in verse 9. But you are rich. But you are rich. If we are to endure persecution without compromise, Christ must be our treasure before persecution. If you're too attached to your stuff, you won't be able to let it go when persecution comes. If you're too attached to your stuff and to your life in the here and now, you won't stick with the Savior when He calls you to lay it all down. And it's not just your stuff. It could be family. It could be treasures. It could be inheritance. It could be the things you enjoy doing. Hobbies. If you're too attached to any of it, you won't stick with the Savior when He calls you to lay it all down. You will be like the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus. You will be like the third soil in Jesus' parable where the deceitfulness of riches, they choke out the Word and it proves unfruitful. Take it from the words of a pastor who endured 14 years of imprisonment and torture in communist Romania, Richard Wormbrand. He once wrote, What shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know, because that is what the communists wish from me, to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself for suffering when the communists have put you in prison. In prison, you lose everything. 
you are undressed and given a prisoner's suit. No more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You do not have a wife anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. And then this is the, the key line. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. And so a critical question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, how rich are you in Christ? Right? If they come and, and burn your house to the ground, along with all of your precious things and pictures, memories, will you still sing the hymns that you sang today? Will you still have your greatest treasure? Make yourself rich in Christ and He will enable you to choose faithfulness when you're afraid. Now we might ask, okay, well how do I do that? How do I make myself rich in Christ? And here are three ways. Um, that are just pulled from a few texts. This is not exhaustive. The New Testament speaks uh, to this uh, in other ways, but here are three main ones. One way to do this is by relating to Christ as your most valuable possession. And so, what, would you, what do you do with some of your most valuable possessions? Do you spend time with them? Right? Do you talk about them a lot? So spend time with, with Him in the Word and in prayer. Sing of His greatness. Talk to others about Christ and what He's doing in your life. With, with every opportunity you have, meditate on His glorious person and work, whether it's on your drive to work or lunch breaks or whichever opportunities you have, just meditate on on how valuable Christ is and how worthy He is of your attention. Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what are you giving up to have more of Christ? That's one way. The second way is we make ourselves rich in Christ when we use our wealth to care for others in need. We don't cling to it too tightly. We have it with an open hand. We use our wealth to care for others in need. So this is uh, Paul's instructions to the rich. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18 and 19, he says... He instructs, them to, he instructs the rich to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for the future. And he doesn't mean the future here on earth. He means the future in the kingdom. So he's telling you how to store up those riches in Christ and in the kingdom by being generous and ready to share 
being rich in good works. Okay? And then third, we, we also grow rich in Christ when we seek the reward of His final kingdom by following Jesus' commands. Okay? So this is what lies behind the, the words to the church in Laodicea. To buy, when Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, who's economically rich but spiritually poor, He's telling them... Buy from me gold that's refined in the fire. And the gold he's talking about is the gold of the kingdom, the new Jerusalem. And the way you get there is by obedience to Jesus. So following Jesus' commandments to obtain that kind of gold. So pursue the treasures of the new Jerusalem, even if it means you suffer in the path of of obedience. Your obedience to Jesus tells the world that the treasures in His final kingdom are greater than the ones here. So invest in your relationship with Jesus. Hold your stuff loosely and be generous. Share with others. Aim for kingdom rewards through obedience. These are all ways to become rich in Christ now. And as you're doing that, the Lord will help you choose faithfulness amidst fears. Finally, speaking of reward, hope in the reward of Christ for faithfulness. Hope in Christ's reward for faithfulness. In verse 10 and 11, Jesus makes two promises. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's one. And the second promise is like it. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the second death is worse than a person's first death. Revelation 21.8 equates it with the lake that burns with sulfur and fire. Jesus will raise the wicked and He will consign them to the lake of fire where there will be no rest but only agony along with the beast and the devil. But for those who are faithful, Jesus promises that they're going to escape that punishment. The second death will not hurt them, he says. Instead, they will, they will gain the crown of life. And this is a victor's crown. Think of like you just, we, we, you know, Olympics just happened and you, know, you get the gold medal. Uh, well, in John's day, the crown, like if you win the race in their Olympics, you wore a crown. You were, you were crowned as, as, as the winner. So, so think of, of winning a, a hard-fought race here. And Jesus will, will crown His people. When He crowns them, it will be a crown of life, of eternal life. A, a life that never ends, but only grows richer in God's presence. So this is the way He rewards those who persevere. Also, don't miss the irony here. When the world kills Christians, it thinks the Christians are losing. But from Jesus' perspective, the Christians are winning. They're getting the crown. They conquer by faithfulness unto death. They conquer by laying down their lives as their Lord laid down His life. 
So Christians are the ones wearing the crowns here. The only crown that counts. Crown of life. So when you're afraid, don't lose sight of this hope. When the pressure of this tribulation scares you, when it leaves you worried and anxious, renew your confidence in Christ's promise to give you the crown of life. Jesus isn't telling us to ignore the facts of your pain or to ignore uh, what you might suffer in the path of obedience. He doesn't tell them to pretend the imprisonment isn't happening. In fact, He doesn't hate to tell them it's about to get worse and end in death. So He's very realistic here. At the same time, they must view these temporary sufferings in light of the eternal reward. He's kind of peeling back heaven and showing, this is, what's, this, is what's a, this is what the devil is about to do to you, but this is the way you should view what's about to happen. Okay? So when, when they do this, when they see from Jesus' perspective, when they, when they compare these temporary sufferings compared to the... To the, the, the reward of eternal life in God's presence, they see more clearly that faithfulness unto death is well worth it. There's another quote from Elizabeth Elliot. She says, Obedience is costly, but the rewards of obedience are priceless. Among the few things we cannot lose. So what are some of your greatest fears? Are these fears compromising your faithfulness right now? Is there some way they're keeping you from stepping out in obedience to Jesus about something, whether that's to share the gospel with a spouse who's not a believer, or share the gospel with your coworker, or do the, the next good thing at work out of fear that you might lose your job because of it? Maybe it's the Lord calling you to an unreached people group with the gospel and you've been saying no for a while because you don't, you're afraid. What are some of your greatest fears and how are those fears compromising your faithfulness to Jesus right now? Are they fears that could lead you to compromise later? Maybe you have them now, but you're not being pressured in a situation, but you could envision that if you were, you would compromise. What are those? I think that this letter, this message of Jesus to the church in Smyrna is specifically for you. He's written it for you to grow in your courage He's written it for you to choose faithfulness when you're afraid by pointing you to these things, by trusting in the sovereignty of Christ, by rejoicing in Christ's victory over death, by making yourself rich in His kingdom, by hoping in His reward for faithfulness. God will enable you to choose faithfulness even when you're afraid. Let the one who hears hear what the Spirit is saying to His church this morning. Let's pray together.
Father, we are thankful for Christ's sovereignty over all things. We are thankful that His kingdom has riches beyond comparison. I ask that You would help us to meditate upon them often and and make ourselves rich there, that we would lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where our heart is, there will our treasure be also. So change our hearts with this word. Help us love and value the right things. And should we be called to give our lives in the face of death, would you make us faithful? Maybe say with the psalmist, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. Amen.